There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swathed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa and I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoto and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land as enshrined in Tetsuriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. Today's episode is from Pecan, and no, this is not an episode from a bag of mixed nuts. This is the Place-Based Climate Action Network from the UK, and this is another episode from our Leeds correspondent, man on the ground in the UK, Simon Moore, PCAN is a group who translate climate policy into action on the ground, through local communities. Their way of networking between the three city-based climate commissions that have already been set up in the UK, in Leeds, Belfast, and Edinburgh. And in this episode, Simon and Jamie Brogan from the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute talk to us from COP26, and then what's happened afterwards. You'll hear the voices of many other members of the UK climate community, And this is a great episode I thought was well worth sharing with you today. But another reason why I thought I'd share this one with you is Simon and everything happening in the UK was top of mind. As just yesterday, he joined a call that I was on to give a skill share about podcasting and the history of the Climactic Collective and what we've learned from running it over these last four years. That was from the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network, and I'll be able to share that talk with you in the coming weeks. It was a lot of fun. And that's why the UK was top of mind. So please enjoy this episode. It's a great one. Simon's really come into his own as a producer and an editor, and you're going to enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Pecan Podcast. I'm Simon Moore. And I'm Jamie Brogan. We're not your usual hosts. We're bringing you a very special episode directly from Glasgow, from COP26. So we're looking across to the blue zone with hope and we're here in the green zone talking about our work on place-based climate action, remembering that we're part of a global community and looking to find out what others think about place-based climate action in their own communities and countries. Fabulous. Hopefully going to be a great show. Are you ready for action? Yeah, let's do it. So to give you a bit of context, I'm Simon Moore from the University of Leeds. 
Jamie Hears from the University of Edinburgh as well as Edinburgh Climate Change Institute. Thank you very much. <laughs> and yeah, we're, we're, we're here, we're representing PECAN. We've just been on the UK COP26 Universities Network stall. Uh, we've been talking to, to punters and really sharing the ethos of the climate commissions and the sort of place-based approach that our projects have been really showcasing. What's it been like so far for you, Jamie, for people that, that have never been to a COP? What's it look and smell and feel like? Well, it's just great to see such a kind of diverse audience of people who are really engaged in a climate conversation. I've been talking to them a lot about our work on place-based climate action. People have been really interested in that. I've been talking a lot around some of the economic model and the roadmaps that people are doing. People are asking really intelligent questions. They see that this isn't easy stuff. They see that there are challenges, but they're up for those challenges. So real kind of energy, real kind of, you know, positivity. But nobody's shying away from the fact that we've got a lot of work to do over the next two weeks and then the next 10 years. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it's, it's the Monday of COP right now, Monday the 1st of November. As you say, it, people are kind of smiling and positive and quite hopeful. We are looking across the River Clyde and we can see the zone we're actually not able to go into. It's more for, for the kind of high-level delegates. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's, there's a lot of hope and energy here, I think. And I think the plan is to go and wander around and talk to some of these people. What, what, what do you reckon? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go talk to some folk. Okay, well, we'll soon to be bringing you some uh, conversations with some of the other Green Zone delegates. <laughs> so, lovely to meet you. But what's your name and what brought you to COP and what do you hope to see uh, at and learn at COP? Oh, my name is Jill Rodriguez. I'm from the International Seakeepers Society and we're an ocean non-profit concentrating on ocean conservation and research and education. And I'm here, I came along to hear the Schmidt Ocean Institute talk this morning, uh, which is fascinating in the panel. Well, welcome and I hope, I hope you enjoyed your talk this morning. I mean, our project, as I said to you before, is very much about uh, localisation and place-based climate action. And we've been very focused on working in three cities, Leeds, Edinburgh and Belfast. We're conscious that we're at a global conference and we're really interested to hear what local climate action means to other people and whether you think local action and action that's connected more to local communities is likely to be more effective than large-scale global pledges that we're likely to see on the other side of the Clyde there. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think um, sometimes the idea of a large global conference where people come with a lot of hot air and they make pledges and then they go away. And then does it actually happen at ground level? Well, I think that events like this that brings the public together to make their own individual pledges is incredibly powerful. And if you put both together, we can actually get somewhere. And I've noticed today people are signing pledges, people are agreeing to do their bit, whether it's to wash their hands in cold water, whether it's to make sure they recycle and they bring it home to their own communities. So I think the big message is filtering down to everybody else and we're starting to take responsibility for what comes next. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, my name's Alec Horsborough. Uh, I'm working for Sky WWF, Sky Zero WWF, uh, originally from Fife. I've been in Glasgow for seven years, and, I, I, you know, I've seen differences even in, in seven years. Um, I think COVID made people think a lot about things and 
the lockdown, I think the lockdown has kind of accelerated people's, uh, you know, people's thoughts about uh, green issues and all the rest of it. I think we've, I think we've done more in two years than we probably would have done in five years if it hadn't been for COVID, sort of thing. So you know, I, I, I see a lot of, uh, I see a lot of changes. What's the biggest things you've, you've seen in those seven years then? What's the well, biggest I mean, I think, Well, I mean, I came in on an electric bus this morning and um, the taxi drivers, I, I, I deal, without going into the big story about it, I deal with taxi drivers and a lot of them have got, they're in the process of getting these more sustainable cabs. I think it's going to cost them £40,000 or something to do it, but they're, they're getting more... I think in a few years' time you'll see more green, just more green vehicles in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, you were talking about Edinburgh a wee while ago, so maybe Glasgow's a wee bit ahead of Edinburgh when it comes to sustainable transport, but I'm loath to say that as an East Coaster, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's had to with the eyes of the world being on it for COP, yeah. you know? What yeah. about as a city to live in generally? I mean, do you think people are more, their greener attitudes? Do you think as a city it's a greener place to be? Well, I came, I came to Glasgow late. I mean, I'm not... I'm not world travel, but in Scotland travelled, and I, I never thought I'd end up living in Glasgow. But circumstances mean that I've been here for for, for seven years, and I think uh, I used to think that people make Glasgow think. I used to think that was a bit of a myth, mm. but actually, it's not. It's not it, it is a it is a place where um, there is a good attitude. I know the the uh, the head of Glasgow City Council yesterday said, you know, people will engage you in conversation and you know, take you half a mile down the road to see, uh, you know, to, to, to your destination. And I think that is not a myth, that is true. And I think the whole kind of rats thing is a bit of a misnomer as well because I looked at the, the stats the other day and Glasgow's not even in the top ten when it comes to rats. So, uh, so I think, I, I just think it's a, it, it's, a good, it's a good place to be. I think Glasgow might come out of it better than some of the politicians. And do you think some of those people, do you think that, you know, openness and connectedness of the people makes it, you know, how can how if you're trying to drive climate action at a local level, does that make it easier? How can you tap into that sort of openness to get people with to tackle some of the really difficult changes we all need to tackle across the world? I think Glaswegians are quite contemporary. I've I've found you know as an incomer into the city, and I've had seven years to digest it. I think Glasgow people of all ages are quite they're quite contemporary. I think I think they're portrayed as oh green issues. What's that all about? Oh, it's not for me. But I think if you engage them on a one-to-one basis, I think they are open to change, and they're they're quite interested. They're quite a curious, they're quite a curious people over here, and um, and again, people that come to Glasgow, they might find out that the local people on the ground are even more curious about the future and and changing things than the politicians. Yeah, you know, well, so. I would agree with that. Okay, good. So thanks for agreeing to have a chat with us. Do you want to tell us your names and what brought you to COP and what you've hope to see out of COP. Yeah, my name's Anwen and I'm here from Edinburgh today. And what brought me was just, I think it's such a historical event and it's amazing to see it go on somewhere in the UK, in Glasgow. It feels like you're going to be part of some sort of history in the making, whether that is the right or the wrong. And I feel like you've got to engage with the what's going on to know whether to fight against it or support it. Hi, I'm Daisy and I came to COP really because I've been involved in environmental activism for a few years now and it was, yeah, as Anwen said, it's kind of like a once in a lifetime thing and it really feels that this is going to be the tipping point for our future and this is the last opportunity for our governments to really 
bring it all together and try and make a change. So I kind of just came to see what was happening and to feel like I was involved and so I can say that I was here in, in this moment. Well, brilliant. Let's hope you get what you hope for from these guys across the other side of the Clyde there. Our, our project that we work on is very much about bringing that um, global challenge back to the local area. I actually work in Edinburgh at the university, and, um, but we also work in Leeds and Belfast. Do you think that the sort of climate action that you guys are looking for is better delivered at a global level? Or do you think it's more important that we connect to what to places and to what is important to people in their local areas and drive that local action? Yeah, I mean, I think from my own involvement in climate activism and stuff, there's nothing it feels real when it is done like in your local area like that's where you connect with people that's where you can make genuine change in around your communities you can help people in any way that they need and support them and i think there's obviously something to be said for global action and and kind of the global way we should get behind and, and try and prevent the climate crisis obviously um, but I think it, it's so important to start in communities and it's it's the real solution to, to the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, working globally to like solve climate change is obviously going to be really, really crucial in defeating it. But I think that one thing that we need to do in everywhere to fix this crisis is to kind of change our systems and to reform the way we live and one of the things we've lost as the world has become more globalized and has like capitalism has got more and more advanced is we've lost that sense of community and that sense of partnership with the people around us and I think that rebuilding sustainable communities where you can get everything you need where you can be supported where you can feel that you're heard and that you can feel You've got a network of people to rely on, so you're not always, I don't know, so you're not relying on consumption and you can, we can really lean on each other as times get more difficult and as everything goes more downhill, we can kind of come together in that sense. So building community is so important. It sounds like that you think that reconnecting with that sense of place is what's going to bring us out of the current climate crisis, we hope. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's doing it in a way that isn't like ignorant. We need to be focused on ourselves. So we need to look after ourselves, but also be aware of the wider world and also be willing to spread that community and to make it ex- and to expand it and to kind of just have this idea of community in the sense it's not us against them. It's us all together, all with each other fighting this. And how do either of you have any thoughts on how you bring that sense of community up to a global level in a global conference with all of the diverse delegates you've already seen today? I think representing as many of those communities as possible and having not just kind of world leaders, but having people that are from communities where they're doing the work, you know, with, with different like economic the circular economy and stuff like that just having those ideas and those conversations represented on a global level it you know it's important to have events like this but remembering that it's the people that it affects is one way to try and bring that and center the conversation correctly and that doesn't matter where they're in the world you know it's 
where it affects them, where they where they live. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> uh, so, so tell us about this this music from from Mother Earth. Well, this was a song that I wrote with a friend about Mother Nature asking for help. Listen, my children, we don't have much time. You must help me, please. Will you help me now? The water's rising. We put it to a video, and then we thought, what will this sound like in a different language? Will you help me? I can't do this alone. And then we got a wonderful Greek singer called Dunya Botik, who translated it and sang it in Greek, and we put it to the same video. But of course, you heard the same story coming from a different culture, and it had an extra effect. Then we thought, well, hang on, how many other languages could we get? And it kind of snowballed. So we've now got 25 different languages uh, that we've done, and we're looking for more all the time. So if anybody is listening, it listens to the project. It's on the mothershipearthsong.com. It's on a website. We have Spotify album of the first 13 versions, and we're going to get the second album out. And we're using it to get the word out, really. We're calling it a COP26 super spreader. <laughs> but the good, the good kind. Of the good kind, exactly. I thought it was about time we got a good connotation to super spreader. And what's uh, the story you're telling in the song? It's Mother Nature saying, it's, it's very, very late. Please, will you help me? I can't do this alone. It's just enough time to change things. It ends up sort of with an optimistic feel because I think you can either go the doom and gloom or you can go, let's see what we can do. Some people have given up. They said, oh, no, I have friends who say, no, no, 10 years, we're finished, full stop. I can't go down that route. I think we need to just, you know, try as hard as we can. You see, you've done it in these different languages. I mean, do those does this all mean different things to different people from different cultures? Yes, I think yes, it does. And what we've been doing, we've updated the video, and we've been putting each of the tracks out now separately. So the Greek one went out today, and I found a picture of uh, a three hundred year old olive tree uh, as a result of the fires in Greece this year. And I didn't know, but olive trees, they burn from the inside out. And that's why it's incredibly difficult to put the, the fire out and heartbreaking to see. And it's a stark image. And we tried to take uh, the uh, different images or different stories from each of the countries. So the Chinese, uh, the Mandarin version. You have the image, do you remember that in this summer of, of the underground station and the tube train with the people up to their necks in water? Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. And it's, it's 
It's the fact that it's happening everywhere. You know, we can no longer say, oh, well, that's happening to them. It's happening to us. So, you know, it's not a case of we own the, the earth. The earth owns us. So you've really captured what climate change means to different people in different places in different ways. Yes. Do you think they all recognise that the, the, it's the same problem, really, that's causing all of these different impacts? Well, the, I mean, the, the, the problems are multiple, really. And we've got, it's, it's a united front if we can address them. I mean, I will be going on the demonstration, and I've got a... I've just found a wonderful image of King Cole, C-O-A-L. He's got a, he's got a, a crown, but it's a skeleton, you know, and that is one of the issues. Yeah. The king is dead, you might say. Well, hope if only he was, if only he was. No, the king is killing us. Is what is what the message of that is. You know, I think China are building 60 coal-fired power stations as we speak, aren't they? Yeah, I understand. Like I mean, it just what? to a certain extent, like they have a dichotomy. You know, our industrial revolution was built on coal, and we did very nicely out of it. Thank you very much. Prior to knowing the devastating effects that it had, and China is now building, and the Red Dragon is being fed. By coal, and they put a cap on their energy prices, haven't they? And they say you can't; these companies can't charge more than this this cap. But it's costing more and more for them to produce electricity. So they're saying, okay, well, if we can't charge anymore, we're not going to produce electricity, and they've got massive outages in China. And they go, well, okay, well, you tell us what we do then. <laughs> anyway, I wish I had an answer to all. I know, I, I, I know. I it's they see. We, it can appear so black and white, yeah, yeah. but it's much more grey. And have you found with your, you know, with your music and with your song, has it inspired people? Has it connected it more has, locally with has. people? It? I mean, we started off, you know, just one or two, and then somebody said, "Oh, I know so and so, you know, Italian, but well, they could, they she could sing it." And I, <laughs> I was over on. Um, we were looking for a Polish version, uh-huh. and prior to this week, I was over on the Isle of Bute. And we hired some electric bikes. Yeah. And the fellow who was in charge of hiring the electric bike was Polish. I told him about it. He went, I have a friend in Poland. <laughs> she is a singer. She has an album. She is recording it as we speak. Brilliant. He did the translation that night. Brilliant. Wow. He said, there you go. There you go. Oh, it's wonderful. And I've just been to the Living Languages talk here where they're taking different languages around the world and getting particular words. And uh, a gentleman who's with the Scots Gaelic, we've got a wonderful connection there. And uh, anyway, it just goes on. You know, I thought, oh, it'll, it'll stop in a month. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of taken over. Anyway. So for our listeners, listeners, we're talking about the Mothership Earth song, and you can get it, I think you said you had a playlist on Spotify. It's on Spotify, the first album, the first 13. That's it. But the others are on our uh, website. And uh, please do have a listen. You'll find your favourite. They're all different versions. We tried to incorporate uh, instruments from different cultures. We just had four from Mumbai have come in. Sanskrit, uh, Marathi, Gujarati and Hindi. 
and they've added their own instruments and it's wonderful. But if you have a listen to that and you think, oh, hang on a minute, this I could translate this or I'm a singer who could do that language. We're aiming for World Radio Day, which is a UNESCO event on the February the 13th of next year. And our ambition is that on that day, we have the same song sung around the world at the same time on the same day. In different languages. In different languages. Wonderful. You never know. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great. Thanks so much. That was Keith Bartlett from the Mothership Earth song. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Good luck. What's your name and where have you come from and what do you hope to get out of COP? What brought you here? Sure. Um, so my name is Bobby Holbrook. I work for a company called Advanced Bacterial Sciences. And I'm actually here at this event representing the company as their head of product. Okay. And I mean, our, our project is very much about place-based climate action and, and in particular around three cities where we work in, in the UK. So we work in Leeds, Belfast and Edinburgh. But we're conscious we're at a global conference and we're you know we're talking about a global challenge that is yeah. climate change yeah and your company might have a perspective on this do you, do, do you think that kind of climate action is more effectively delivered at a local level or national things <laughs> like are happening across the Clyde there um i think that we've had enough time to implement a top-down approach and if we waited for it to happen at the global and national level and then seep down to the local level we wouldn't make it in time. So actually, we need a two-pronged approach. So meetings like this where world leaders will come and discuss things that they will eventually do um, are important to at least bring attention to the local populations. And I think at an individual level, we need to start analyzing our behaviors. Where we really can make an impact is at the level of a small business. So the small businesses are where the government is focusing on investment. So actually, if those small businesses really implement a change, then those community level changes would spread faster than individuals acting. It's really interesting that you're talking about small businesses, actually. And is that small businesses in terms of their climate impact or is it in terms of the change that their products and services can drive? Both. I think they're really at the sort of crucible of what the, where that change is. So where they, focus to, uh, where they choose to focus their investments in terms of their activity and how they choose to develop will be the game changer. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and do you think that happens more at a local level or do you think that's, you know, are they, those businesses still in a global market and looking at how they fit into that global market? The reason I answered with small businesses is actually, you know, the governments are focusing on small businesses for change and that's where their campaigns are lying. But actually, even the commercial giants, like um, I'm just going to throw out the cliche Google, mm -hmm. don't really develop any of the technologies anymore. They'll wait for a small startup to develop its technology and then buy that up. So these big giants aren't focusing as much on innovation as the small companies are. And actually... That model is so common now that when the small companies implement their innovation, the big companies will be there to implement that at the global scale. Yeah. 
Thanks so much for that. It's a different perspective from anything <laughs> we've heard so far. What's your company called? Advanced Bacterial Sciences. Advanced Bacterial Sciences. And you're based in? Lancaster. Okay. Small company punching at a global level. Okay. <laughs> so here we are at COP, you know, again, talking to people about what place-based climate action might mean to them. And we're here with, do you want to tell us your name and what's brought you to COP and what you hope you hope, you hope to see coming out of COP? So my name is Tracy Irvin and I'm the Managing Director for a company called Oasis Hub who brings together climate change and natural hazard data into one global hub at all different levels, so from national to local level data. So you have a real perspective on climate adaptation, so I'm kind of hoping you might bring a slightly different thought process to some of the conversations we've had around place-based climate action. I mean, if I was to say... You know, what does local climate action mean to you? What does it mean to somebody like you and the business that you're in? So I think that sort of lo- local climate action could actually link more, you know, much better with science, essentially. So there's lots of new tools coming out from the scientific sector that could be utilised at local level and better u- u- utilised by local knowledge, essentially. So, for instance... If you know that, you know, a part of your town or your city is, is, you know, vulnerable to, say, flash floods, you could then use some of these tools to sort of cost-benefit analyse sort of things like, you know, flood water protection schemes and, and things like that and sort of look at whether it's worth doing that or whether you could use, you know, pushing water into a park or things like that to protect your local area. So I think local knowledge linked with scientific capacity is is really important and not enough is done to do that. So you're really talking about a very place-based approach to tackling that global challenge that is climate change because you need to tap into people's knowledge of the local, the specific local challenges in order to tackle it most effectively. I mean, what we know across the whole of Europe is that things like floods and... Uh, you know, wildfires and things like this are going to, and droughts are going to happen more often and with more intensity. So local, you know, local stakeholders need to sort of think about that and think about how vulnerable their, you know, local area is and what measures, some of them will be very, very cheap things you could do to actually protect some of your local assets. It's not all about spending high amounts of money some of it's about using say the local maintenance budget to when you do the maintenance to then um, feed climate you know improving your area against climate you know against climate change Um, yeah so think about that and if you're going to learn those very local lessons what opportunities do you see then to maybe scale them up and share those lessons on a more global you mentioned you work across Europe on a more sort of global scale yeah well, I think that's already happening. There's things like We Adapt, which is set up to share information on adaptation uh, to everybody. And so, so across Europe, people are sharing case studies on what they've done. And I think that type of initiative, we could do it for the UK as well, could be quite an important thing where people can share real-life experiences of how this can be done rather than it all being theoretical and you know, people feeling hopeless, people can do, do things about it. I've been in, involved in projects where one community got together, and this was in the UK, to take action against climate. 
and basically they they did so much they protected their village from a major flood and so it looks like in insurance purposes they were like on a hill whereas in fact they were the same as everyone else but they've done so much to protect their you know their village that um you know it looks like essentially they're not a flood risk when when actually they are in a flood risk zone so local communities can actually do a lot working together yeah and i would and, and i suppose if you if you hear something from a real person then you're more likely to think well that can make that work here you know yeah i mean i think this this aspect that every one of us has you know some power even if it's just identifying where the problem areas are you know people that walk their dogs or you know walk to the shops they know where the the risks are the flood risks are so so they can you know feed that into their local authorities to say look there's a problem here and if it if it we get a real deluge it's going to flood you know and more and property's going to you know be damaged just through small scale floods not necessarily the large scale flooding you know it's not all about large scale floods so yeah there's a lot we can do to protect properties really Brilliant, Tracy, thank you. Do you think adaptation gets enough focus? Absolutely not. It's all focused on mitigation. And and I actually think that, um, you know, a lot of damage has been done to the atmosphere and there's scientists looking at, um, you know, in terms of intensity of floods, they're saying, actually, the future is really worrying. And uh, so climate ad- adaptation should be happening now. It's not something in the future, you know, local communities can actually do a lot and it could actually improve, you know, both their protection, but, you know, there would be ways of having more green space, you know, for for children and things like that without, you know, costing very much. So there's a lot people can do at local level, I think. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you very much. So hello, thanks for agreeing to have a wee chat with us. What's your name and what brought you to COP? And I'm a scientist, I suppose, and I've come here because I'm interested in action on climate change, very much so. Um, My main objective is I actually produced a film for this called Overpopulation, or the interrelationship between overpopulation and climate change, of which there is very much so, I think. Brilliant. And you've come to the right place, hopefully, for climate action. We'll see how they get on across the water well, there. I, I hope they do get on. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not one of the... I'd love to be... If I were them, I would certainly tomorrow... I think we've got to the technology now where we can certainly... All our cars could be converted in the next three years to, to electric. And I think uh, probably a lot of our large vehicles would go into hydrogen. We've certainly got to a technical, technological level where we can achieve an awful lot very quickly. And I think we should. And I, I, I wish that India and China and Germany would, would, would get rid of their coal power stations. I look forward to Desertec, you know, the big, um, you know, actually generating the larger projects, seeing some larger projects take place like Desertec, which is exporting energy from the Sahara into Europe. Uh, and that sort of thing happening. And, and that's what's nice to come here. You, you tend to meet, although I haven't yet met them yet, you tend to meet scientists who are doing that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Although I haven't, I've been to several cops. I've been to one in Paris and I went to the one in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, so, but this one's slightly different, you know, there's less scientific side events here. Which, yeah, and it sounds like you don't think the barrier to 
tackling climate change as technology. It's very much about behaviours and cultures well, and values and attitudes. It's business. Um, people, I come from an island that's very wealthy, and but it's also very miserly, and it uh, really does astound me at how people are not converting to electric cars, even though they have the money. They have these enormous, great big multi-million houses, yet they still drive. I cannot understand SUVs. And that, I just... It, it, it's something that government could change tomorrow by taxing them and by giving incentives. And, and uh, you know, you could wipe out, presumably, a good 10% of our, you know, energy. And we've got to invest, obviously, a lot more in, in, in renewable energy to get things going. We're doing brilliant stuff in the UK now. Mm -hmm. 40% of our electricity comes from, from those sources. I, I think we could do more. And I think nuclear, well, unfortunately, Germany is very anti-nuclear, and I don't quite understand why they're so, so... And from what you're saying there, do you think climate action can be more effectively delivered at a local level where it more connects to local challenges than, you know, with global pledges and global I think global it can both level. I think the government could really help by putting tax incentives. I mean, what have they done to tax a motor car out of existence? They haven't. Uh, you're probably running an electric, uh, 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 hydrocarbon car. Um, I don't know. Are you? A bike. A bike. Oh, well, that's even better. Uh, but m most majority of people come here, come here, and still in, in, in. I know they're less, they're more expensive, but there's no reason today if you've got, you know, to ha not have a, 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 some sort of uh, have an electric car. I think now because. The prices are coming right down. It's, it's government too. I mean, remember, China produces a very good electric car at about £20,000, whereas the nearest thing we have is about £30,000 here. Um, and then it's going up to Tesla's at £40,000, £50,000. Uh, and realistically, you've got to get, I think, the price down to about 20000 And it should be there if they pushed it. I don't know why this country doesn't do it, but... We don't. I know we've done. We've done magnificently in, in, in wind power, for instance, yeah. in this country, and, 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 and you know, bravo for that. I think, and we're doing a lot on hydrogen, but we could do a lot more. Uh, for instance, I do think we could uh, get the Saudis and that sort of to, to produce a hydrogen plant. You know, show them that there's an alternative. They're producing 40 tons equivalent of, of carbon dioxide per year in comparison to our five. It's gone down from 10, which is great. I mean, we are doing well. But we could do a lot, lot better, and, and we should really be aiming to, to reduce it by example. And I think we haven't done enough. I say cars now, uh, and then the heavy vehicles, the trains, and, and the lorries to be converted to hydrogen now. There's a Daimler, there's a Rolls-Royce engine out there that works off hydrogen. There's uh, another one, there's a JCB that works off hydrogen coming out next year. So hopefully uh, we'll go down that line. Maybe I'm imagining the technological inventions coming forward, but I think we could do a lot, lot more. And I pray that we do. And I think um, individually, yes, on a local, on a ground foot level, I think that most people are. You, you listen to most people are very aware. Um, the sort of society is very split, but I think that 50% of society are quite aware. The other side is, are too busy still making too much money to bother which is unfortunate because they're the ones who should be doing more but you have hope i i have hope but it's a bit slow being a population scientist it's like trying to say somebody yeah, people are having less children for instance today thank god but we are not very good at communicating to that to 
countries which still have very high fertility rates, which is what my film is about, by the way. Um, you know, African countries. We hope that the internet, that the 40,000 uh, satellites are going to be brought out by, um, by Elon Musk and the OneWeb uh, the 3,000 and the Amazon 4,000. Hopefully they will introduce cost-effective internet to these people in the third world. And I, I really believe that because the migration going forward from Africa and people from Syria where, where still fertility rate, the message hasn't got through. I think it's not just greenness. We've got to think about numbers of human beings and that is what I'm here to try and do. Well, thank you for your contribution and we'll look forward to seeing your film. Yeah. So it's week two of COP26 and I'm here as a kind of wrap-up, really. I'm, I'm soon to be leaving Glasgow. Uh, it's my kind of last full day out and about. I'll be back in the green zone showing off the Ripple Effect, which is a film that Pecan have put together with young people from the UK and South Africa. I'm here having a kind of final discussion, probably, for, for this episode with Rosanna Harvey Crawford, who is a Pecan associate and a former member of the, the team at Edinburgh Climate Commission. So, Rosanna, great to talk to you. Can you tell me a bit, we're, we're talking here about kind of local climate action, how that, how that sort of plays into this global negotiation, the global picture. From your experience in Edinburgh, and now, now you've moved to Glasgow, conveniently, <laughs> ahead of COP26, from your experience, how sort of important do you think the national and the global picture is in terms of making things happen on the ground in the places where we particularly are operating? I think I've been thinking during this COP about how national and global commitments don't often translate to the local level. And I think I've definitely seen that before in Edinburgh where the local authority wasn't getting the support it needed from the national government in terms of its climate commitments and I don't think their ambition was being recognised as being part of the wider goal for Scotland to be carbon neutral or net zero by 2045 Um, and I think I've just had that sort of reconfirmed during this COP which is being spoken of as sort of the most exclusionary ever and going to events with Indigenous leaders and them saying that they don't feel the effects of any of the commitments that are made to end deforestation or protect indigenous land rights they don't feel them on the ground either and I think that's maybe something that is still missing that connection between global and local and maybe respecting the importance of local when it comes to these very grand pledges and commitments. Yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, because it, it kind of it works both ways, really, doesn't it? That stronger action locally can, can sort of can feed up the chain and, and help to put pressure, I guess, nationally and internationally. But you're right, the other way around is, is equally important, that it's about enabling or getting rid of the sort of barriers and blockers that can stall local action. What would you say from, from your experience with the Edinburgh Climate Commission... How hopeful are you that local partnerships, I know you had the Edinburgh Compact as well, mm. how hopeful are you that those partnerships can, dare I say it, achieve more than agreements we might get at things things like the Paris Agreement or 
I don't know whether we'll see a Glasgow agreement, but but yeah, what do you think? I think a lot of these local commitments, I think like the Climate Compact or a city pledging to become net zero, as challenging as that may be, they feel a lot more tangible and I think it's easier to hold the people who make those commitments to account and that was a really important part of the climate compact like how to ensure accountability and and high standards from the people who signed it um whereas again another thing that's been spoken about during cop is how many pledges and promises have been missed in the past and i think that's because accountability hasn't been written into those pledges and it's quite hard when it's different global institutions to sort of pin who's pin down who's responsible so I think I feel more positive about local commitments and also that I hope that I think we are seeing a more engaged population on terms of climate change and and I hope that local populations do feel empowered to hold their politicians and their local politicians to account over their promises. I totally agree with you there. Just as a final point, it's, it's Monday, the second week of COP, so we've just... We've just had these kind of huge marches Friday and then Saturday was was enormous. What's your experience as as a as a resident of Glasgow, uh, as a Scot? <laughs> what's what's COP been like for you, and and what's it kind of felt like to be part of it? Um, oh, it's a difficult one. Um, I think living here in the lead up has just. <laughs> been very interesting we you might know we had sort of train strikes we're currently having a refuse strike during cop where sort of locals have been told not to leave out their bin bags <laughs> um and i think maybe there's a bit of a sense that cop is something that's just sort of happening to glasgow as opposed to yeah something that's happening with people in glasgow i do think I mean, I'll probably never live in a cop city again. So, and I work in climate change, so it's been great to be able to experience that. But I think it's a shame. I think there's been an opportunity missed to sort of engage the population um, here and in Scotland, maybe a bit more. And that sounds very negative. I mean, obviously, it has been. This weekend was amazing with the marches, and I know we were both there on Saturday, and it was freezing and raining, but there was an amazing energy. And I think what's been brilliant about this COP is seeing all these amazing young climate activists and seeing them sort of in pictures around the city. And yeah, that's been probably the best part of it for me. Um, yeah, makes me feel more positive for the future. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for painting that picture. It 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 was kind of remarkable being being part of those giant marches and seeing all those people out there. Uh, and yeah, I think I kind of totally agree. I, I think I always find myself catching myself when I'm like, nope, you're being too negative and pessimistic, uh, and you need to pull yourself back to having some hope. But then occasionally going the other way and thinking, you're you're dreaming now. You need to like. <laughs> engage with actually what's what's going on and and find that balance where you feel empowered to act because of the urgency but not overwhelmed and sort of defeatist that it's game over when it's obviously not amazing well thanks for joining me to to round off the pecan podcast it's been great 
talking to lots of different people, myself and, and Jamie in the green zone and you, you helped us out on the pecan stand last monday so thanks again for that but yeah thanks to everyone that's, that's listened and everyone that took the time to talk to us and give us their perspectives from from around the world about the importance of local action here on the global stage glasgow during cop 26 so thanks for listening i've been simon moore just been joined by rosanna harvey crawford uh, and jamie brogan helped to introduce the episode so thanks again and we'll see you next time on the pecan podcast the climactic collective